You're listening to KDNK, and I am Bill Kite, host for the Land Sake Show. And today we are privileged to have with us our guest is John Fahey. Welcome, John. Hi, Bill. How are you today? Doing great. You know, uh, I really like the book that we're going to talk about today, A Long Tangent. How did you get to that decision to to do a, a book about one year's worth of walking with your dog? Because I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, but I I was kind of interested in how you got to that point. Well, I was uh, <clears throat> I was getting ready to turn turn sixty, and was uh, actually, and this will shock everybody, I was sitting on a bar stool in the in the town that I live in in New Mexico, in sort of a, I guess a pensive mood would be the best way to describe it. And I was trying to come up with something to, I guess, usher in my 60s that would be physically challenging and yet attainable for somebody in my advanced years. Right. And the, the, the previous year, I had hiked 41 straight days in a futile effort to drop a few pounds before my high school reunion. Uh-huh. And, and that had been the longest consecutive number of days that I'd hiked in my life. I mean, even when I... Even when I did my long hikes on the Appalachian Trail and the Colorado Trail and the Arizona Trail, I, I never went more than 14 days without taking a day off. And anyway, so, so I'm sitting there on this bar stool scribbling some alternatives down on a cocktail napkin. And I, I was at a point in life that I couldn't like take six months off to try to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. I just had too many things going on. So I had to do something that was essentially in my backyard. And I started playing with the idea of hiking for a hundred straight days and I had a couple more beers. And by the time I got home, I said, the heck with that. I'm going to try to hike every day for a full year. And there are only two, two rules. One is that every hike had to be a minimum of 60 minutes. Okay. Uh, although most were much longer and every hike had to take place out in the forest. So hiking around town or hiking around my neighborhood, I mean, that that didn't count. Those aren't even hikes. Those are walks. Right. And I started the next day. I, I, didn't, I didn't mentally prepare. I just got up the next day and, 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 start, and began. And then I ended up hiking 367 straight days. Yeah, you did it. You did what you set out to do. It's pretty amazing to me. And, I, and you did it in New Mexico, where, where I'm from. And I love the, I love the places you, where you talk about New Mexico, especially where you say, uh, you know, in New Mexico, lesson one is things really or r- things rarely work out. Then they do, and that's just—it's just like New Mexico, isn't it? I mean, seriously, you got—you got to know about it. it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a—it uh, is its own little world here, that's for sure. And, and and I've lived in the mountain time zone for almost fifty years, and that time has been almost equally divided between Southwest New Mexico and the Colorado High Country, and, and I and I love both areas. Right. Uh, the Colorado High Country, I live mostly in Summit County, and I, I kind of described it as being a little bit short on the eccentricity front. Right. And you, you do not say that about New Mexico. No. <laughs> New Mexico has all the eccentricity you could possibly want. Yep, definitely the land of enchantment. Uh, and you mentioned that a few times, and especially uh, my, one of my favorite parts as far as the geography is concerned is the Gila, which is exactly yeah. what you say, the Gila. And that's... Uh, you know, there's a, a couple of places in here. I don't know if you wanted to read from your book or not, but I had a couple of places that were were pretty darn good uh, to read. I, so how do you feel about that? 
Well, I, I would have to run and get a copy of the book. I have some passages right in front of me, but not the entire book. Well, if you got some passages, uh, would you, you want to read any of those passages for us so people get a flavor of what, what we're talking about here in the book? Yeah, I, I could do that. Um, okay. And this is this one of the things that I want to say about this book, about this manuscript, is, is though I present it in linear fashion, that is, you know, day 25, day 200, that, that, and, and that sort of order, although not every day has an entry. Um, it, it wasn't, it is not a put one foot after the other sort of narrative. Um, I, I've done several books like that. I did, John Fielder and I, the late John Fielder and I, did several books on trail books, the Colorado Trail, the Divide Trail, that were essentially, I get up in the morning and I hike tomorrow. And, and th- this book, contains basically anything that occurred to me during that 367-day period that was even remotely relevant to the undertaking. So some of the chapters occurred in the great indoors. Some of them were very, very (laughs) speciously related to the hike. I mean, most of them were directly related to the hike, but, but this included a lot of stuff that was not directly related to the hike. And then this chapter is one such example. Um, this is this is day 138, and this takes about five minutes to read this this chapter. Good. It, it was finally time to send my 16-year-old Rand McNally Road Atlas to the old Atlas home. Its pages were frayed, its staples long unstapled, its print faded, looking like something brittle in a museum from the old-timey days of exploration a Dead Sea Scrolls of the Internal Combustion Era. In these days of Internet-based manifestations of digital cartography, the world is your oyster with the push of a button and a few quick bearings-based questions to the perpetually congenial lady who dwells inside your smartphone. For a few of us, though, no excursion is complete without the feel of real paper in our hands. While our numbers seem to be rapidly diminishing, there yet remains a diehard handful of map junkies, those for whom tattered, seared, and stained atlases are far more than the sum of their informational parts. They are, rather, two-dimensional stories of our travels to distant trailheads located in national forests and parks, the only delete button being inevitable decomposition that leaves us trying to reconcile and separate the memories of those countless miles crisscrossing the Rand McNally world. As I carried the mortal remains of my road atlas toward the recycling bin, I wondered for the first time in years what the inspiration was to circle all those little towns with funny names in green magic marker ink. And whose phone number is that jotted sloppily in the margin next to the inset of Owensboro, Kentucky? I've never been to Owensboro, Kentucky. Don't know anyone who has good enough reason to plan a standard deviation when next I'm in the vicinity of the lower Ohio River Valley. Maybe dial that number to see who answers. He or she might be able to tell me something about my past. And what happened to the second page of Maryland, where ought to be found Baltimore, the Chesapeake Bay, and the Eastern Shore? Though the recollection is hazy, seems to me I was camping in Oregon, and the perpetual dampness was making it difficult to start a fire. I needed paper reinforcements to assist the process of rapid oxidation. Pickings were slim, but there was my atlas. I thumbed through, trying to decide 
where I was the least likely to ever drive to. Maryland got sacrificed in the name of warmth and light. A few years later, I was searching for a specific state park in western Massachusetts. There was no page for western Massachusetts in my atlas. Where had it gone? It had gone up in flames with Maryland. Always a flip side to every coin. Disoriented nostalgia aside, it was time for a new road atlas, preferably Rand McNally, the gold standard of American highways and byways. The bookstore had atlases of the solar system, but not the U.S. None to be found at the pharmacy or any of the gas stations or convenience stores in town. In desperation, I tried Walmart. Though I did not know exactly where to look, among aisles so seemingly endless and convoluted, they could use an atlas of their own. I finally asked a young blue-frocked associate, assuming, of course, in this pixelated era, that I would need to draw a map to explain what a map actually was. She knew right away where to look. As we walked the retail equivalent of the Continental Divide Trail, the associate gleefully recounted to me her love of road atlases. She said her father was a long-haul truck driver who would, upon returning from his extended forays over the blacktop, draw with his finger upon a ratty Rand McNally where his last travels had taken him. He would, she said, relate stories about rivers that flowed green and gardens populated by elves and coastlines where the sand glowed pink in the dark. I knew he was making most of it up, she said, but I loved hearing his stories, and he loved telling them. Her father had long since passed away. The young lady kept the old road atlas upon which he used to line out fantasies with his finger. She said it was her most treasured possession, that she would never, ever let it go. It keeps me grounded, she said. If I ever have kids, I want to tell them those same stories. I had entered that Walmart disoriented by canyon walls lined floor to ceiling with cheap plastic products manufactured manufactured in third world sweatshops. I left with a brand new Rand McNally Road Atlas, which I likely would not have found without the assistance of a very well-oriented young lady. That trek through retail hell turned out to be among my favorites of the entire year. And that's that chapter. Thanks for reading that, John. That's uh, that. You know what I like about the book is it isn't a chronological order. You you tell stories. You're a great storyteller. You tell a story that grabs you, and then I'm laughing my 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 rear off, and all of a sudden, then you say something that just really pulls me in. So I I really, especially on maps. Another section in the book later on, you talk about how you love maps, and I, I'm one of those people, yeah. so I, I understand that for sure. Yeah. I suspect we have that in common, which is one of the reasons I pulled that chapter out. Well, yeah, I'm a map collector. I have a, I have a, I have a big box of maps that I, I look at almost every night when I'm watching TV or just sitting around the house. Yep, yeah, it's it's so much better than relying on electronic device that may not work when you need it. You know, I can <laughs> I can <laughs> I can mark on the map like you said. It, it's uh, but tell us a tell us a short story. Of, one of your favorites or just the circumstances of where you were just really part of the funny part of this book, which is a lot of it, uh, if you want. I mean, I, if you can think of one particular story that stands out. Well, I can. I, I've just, uh, as you probably know, I just finished an almost month-long book signing tour, most of which was in Colorado. Yep. And uh, so, so, I, so I had the opportunity to, uh, to, to sort of fine-tune my, my spiel, I guess, my dog and pony show. Right. Um, 
I, I the, the place where I live in southwest New Mexico is the first uh, official gateway community for the Continental Divide Trail. The, the, the CDT goes right through our town. Um, and uh, I, I was I was out of the trailhead, um, the CDT trailhead, and, and a guy pulled in in a sprinter van with California plates. Which which had me ready to run for my life, but but it ended up being he navigated it fairly well, and he asked me some directions, and after I gave him the directions as he was pulling out, he complimented my hiking stick, and and, and I was gobsmacked. I mean, we a lot of people down where I live still use hiking sticks in Colorado. It's it's mainly trekking poles. Yep, we're we're a little bit more prim- primitive down here in New Mexico. And, and I was I was very flattered. I take my hiking stick very seriously, and and that compliment got me really really thinking about my history with hiking sticks, which goes all the way back to my time on the Appalachian Trail in the 1970s. And uh, the, I ended up writing a 5,000 word chapter on hiking sticks, yeah, and and yeah. this this book gave me the opportunity to really stroll, take some strolls down memory lane. And, and to write about things that I have not had the opportunity to include in previous books or in previous magazine articles. I mean, as you know, I do a lot of magazine work, too. And, and one of the components of, of this long chapter on, on hiking sticks was, was a memory of the worst, the worst accident that I ever encountered, experienced on the trail. And I, I was hiking out of uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina, on the Appalachian Trail. And I had two friends with me who were just joining me for a, a short stretch. And, and climbing up the side of a mountain, my foot slipped out from under me. And I came down full force with my eye on the top of my hiking stick. And my, my world exploded in red. Oh, and and I, was, I was quite freaked out, <laughs> needless to say. Yeah, right. And I... I, uh, I I yelled for help, and it was a really steep section of trail. So it took one of my, my one of my buddies quite a while to catch up to me. And he when, when he crested the hill and saw me, he literally screamed, which did nothing to calm my nerves. No. And, no. and 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 he was he was freaking out. He was no help whatsoever. And I, and I didn't I didn't know what the situation was at this time. I didn't know if I'd lost my eyeball. And the second guy came up, and and was remarkably calm. And he put his pack down. and He came over. And he said the words, you don't see that every day. And he started playing with my eyelid and it ended up that my eyelid was almost completely torn off. And he could move my eyelid up and down in such a way that you could see the top of my eye and the bottom of my eye. It was like sending semaphore or something like that. And, and he ended up improvising a couple of butterfly bandages, I think out of duct tape. And I remember looking with my one good eye at his fingers as he was working on, working on my other eye that I couldn't see. And I noticed how dirty his fingernails were. And, and I was sitting there thinking, okay, there, there's going to be, a, I'm, I'm going to have a terrible in, infection here. And a few days later, I was able to, you know, for the next few days, I was passing people on the trail who were gasping at my, at my eye situation. And, and I ended up, I ended up hitchhiking into, into a town in North Carolina, one of these Appalachian towns that, that, that are just, in those days, were very frightening. And I, I, I went to a clinic, and, and the doctor busted up the, the, the scar tissue or the scab or whatever and started doing the same thing that my friend had done on the trail. 
and that is moving my eyelid up and down. And and he was giggling the whole time. And and he invited people in from the waiting room <laughs> to 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 observe this. And I'm freaking out. And but he patched he patched me up and and, and he said it's probably gonna be a couple months before the thing totally heals and and I can still look at it a little bit and see a little bit of scar tissue on there. But but that was an example of, of where this three hundred and sixty seven day uh, undertaking gave me the opportunity to really let my mind just wander down various, various roads. So I ended up writing about that experience in this book. Yeah, and there's so many other good stories in there as well. Uh, you're listening to KDNK's For Land's Sake Public Affairs program, and today we have John Fahey with us, who is the author of A Long Tangent, Musings by an Old Man and His Young Dog Hiking Every Day for a Year. I hated that the book was over with, John, to tell you the truth. I mean, it because, uh, like I said, it'll you, you tell a story, and then you're laughing, and then next thing you know, you have something really pertinent and important to say. And uh, I, I I just really recommend the book to anybody. And I, I picked mine up here at the White River Bookstore. I'm sorry I missed your, your reading there. I really couldn't make it, and um, I, I wish I would have, because then we could have had a beer afterwards. Well, we, we did. We did. We did have several beers afterward, and it was a. Uh, it was a one of the highlights of my recently concluded tour was my stop at White River Books, and it was a great crowd. And uh, I think it was Izzy's very first author reading, and she did a great job. And it's a great bookstore, and Carbondale is very lucky to have such a cool bookstore in the middle of the middle of town. I agree for sure, but I would have been there if I could have. I just wanted you to know that for sure. Appreciate it. So what is it about the Gila that uh, that grabs you? Because, you know, it it either infects you, like you said, or it does not. That's just the, the way it is. What What's magic about it that, that you can reveal to us a little bit from your feelings about it? Well, we that, that, is, that is not an uncommon subject of discussion, a topic of discussion down here in, in southwest New Mexico, because in most ways, the Gila National Forest is not as in-your-face spectacular as a lot of the mountain ranges in, in the Central Rockies. In a lot of ways, it, it beauty is more subtle, but it's also it's also intense in ways that are hard to really grasp. Um, first of all, it's vast, as you likely know, and I didn't know that you had a history in New Mexico. I'm glad you glad you said that. Um, it's home to the world's first legally designated wilderness area, the Gila Wilderness, which will be celebrating its 100th anniversary next year, which that's going to be a big to-do. I'll I'll try to make that, yeah, because I hiked across that like you did uh, once when I was younger, and it it was an amazing experience. It really was. Well, one one of the big attractions to it is that it is relatively unvisited, and and which... Which compared, you know, again, I lived in Summit County for a long time, and, and as you know, you know, most of the Colorado high country is pretty popular with hikers. And and and, and you know, I don't I don't mean to disparage other trail users because I'm a trail user. It would be hypocritical for me to to disparage other trail users, but it is nice to go to a place that is little visited. And if you want to get away from the teeming masses in the Gila, it's a very easy thing to do. But it, its vastness is. We have an overlook on the way to the Gila Cliff Dwellings National Monument, which I think is our biggest tourist draw. Yep. And 
and and the overlook is on a cherry stem road into the Gila. So on, it's a dead end road. So you know, so like fifty feet on either side of this road is the Gila Wilderness, and this overlook you can see forever in every direction, and you see people coming out of cars with like Minnesota license plates, and you see them slowly scouring the terrain. And they and they start huddling closer together. <laughs> I mean, it almost right. it, it's almost like holy cow, where are we now? And there there's some interesting juju in the healers. I mean, this is this is the place where Geronimo is from, and and, and not and it's not like he passed through here. This is where he was born. This was his home territory, and a little bit of that heavy duty native vibe still still is is you feel it. I mean, you can't put a I can't say, okay, you, you see, you know, a, a Chiricahua Apache walking through the Gila, but you feel it. And, and, and it's kind of intense in a way that's hard to describe, obviously, because I'm not describing it very well. But I just talked to a guy who's writing a book about the Gila. He's actually a bookstore owner in Colorado. And he, of his experiences down here, he says, the Gila wants to kill you. <laughs> and yeah. and I'd, I'd, never, I'd never really thought about it, but it is... When you step foot into the Gila, I mean, you really do think that there's a possibility that maybe you're not going to be coming out of the Gila. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that your demise can come about. But 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 it, it has an intensity that I never really felt in all the years and all the miles I spent hiking around the Colorado backcountry. Um, but but, it, but it, it, it is intense, as you know. You've been here. You know, it has an intense feel to it. It does, for sure. And uh, I like the part, too, where you talk about the road to get there. And I, I'm assuming that you talked about the road to Hillsboro, that people freak out. And, yeah, right? Was that yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's called Emory, Emory Pass. We we have uh, two or three roads down here that um, – Emory, okay, Emory Pass is only about 8,000 feet. And, and I've, had a, I've had many, many people from Colorado come to visit me down here. Yep. I think mainly to see what attracts us to this area, and, and, and they drive—they invariably drive over Emory Pass, and because it's only eight thousand feet, Colorado Coloradans who are used to eleven thousand foot passes or twelve thousand foot passes kind of scoff at the notion. And I'll get a phone call from the other side, just saying, <laughs> "Holy crap, <Yeah. laughs> you did not forewarn." And, and we have several roads like that, and, and the comparison—and these are all paved roads. The the, the comparison that I have in Colorado that the only road that I know of in Colorado that has that compares to to like three roads that we have down where I live is uh is Highway 550 from like Uray down to Durango. Right. Yep. Um you know going over Red Mountain Pass, yep. you know that's that I mean even even Independence Pass which I just recently drove over and it's a wonderful pass. I love driving over Independence Pass. Doesn't have that same butt puckering factor that Emory Pass has. That's that's true. Yeah, it's definitely true, and that keeps people away. Is what I chuckled at when I was reading that. You uh, know, hopefully keep more people away from uh, the Gila. But I'm being selfish because uh, that's one of my favorite places. It really is. You know, well, I, I have a. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to. I, I had I, my my first draft of this book was two hundred thousand words. Wow. I mean, I wrote this book with with the idea that I, I was never going to attempt to get it published. So, so I was uninhibited as far as as far as writing it, and, and it, it had to be cut. I mean, more more than in half. 
before before it was it was publishable. And, and one of the chapters that I that I excised from the original manuscript from the first draft sort of dealt with that subject of, of closing the gate behind us. Right. And 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 you know any any time that you entertain the notion of attempting to mitigate visitation to an area, uh-huh. you know, you're, you're accused of being a curmudgeon or you want to close the gate behind you. I mean, there, there's numerous uh, uh, terms that people use to describe folks who, who and, and that, that, is a com- that is a complicated question. I mean, here I just wrote a book about the Gila, although I, I, don't, I don't advertise the Gila the way that like a marketing firm would advertise it. Right. Um, and and it's just it's one of those it's one of those weird things. We have people down here in Southwest New Mexico who are frantically attempting to develop our outdoor recreation based tourism industry. I mean that that is their their goal. And and the weird part about that is, well, first of all, a lot of, a lot of the a lot of the statistics you read about the economic impact of the outdoor recreation industry on on small remote towns is pure bunk. Um, I've interviewed a lot of the people who invent the, the the algorithms that they use for that stuff, and they say it's just a, it's just a wild guess. Um, but but what what we don't talk about very much is the impact that that increased visitation has on the natural world. Right. And if you build a trail or encourage more people to, to visit trails, it has an impact on the natural world. Yes, it does. And it. It's hard. It's you know. And, and anyway, if you bring that up, then once again, you're a curmudgeon, and you want to close the gate behind you. It, and in the in this book, I, and if you read the book, you you know this. I, I, I ask the outdoor recreation industry to look in the mirror, to 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 examine itself through the same prism that it demands that we we examine the extractive industry. Right. That we look at, we look at our impact on on the natural world. And and but once it, once again, there there are a few places that are starting to talk about that, but mainly through the through the prism of overcrowding. They don't have the the tourist infrastructure to handle the crowds. Right. And and when when you when you bring it up about the impact on the natural world, you get you get some stink eye. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. Yep. And and and, and I, I don't I, I don't know how to how to get people to think in those terms when their natural reaction is for the third time, you're nothing but an old curmudgeon. It's like, okay, you just, I just shrugged my shoulders and I really don't know what to say or do. Well, I don't know that that's so bad to be called an old curmudgeon myself. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I I wish we had more time to really, I, I, we could take another hour just to go over some of the, especially the really funny parts of the book. Uh, like when you when you lost your keys, I'm right there with you. I have done that, not quite to that extent, but I've done that so many times, you know. And uh, it's been well, so it's been so great talking with you, John. And I just encourage anyone, yeah. if you especially if you love dogs, to go out and get this book, Long Tangent, by John Fahey. Thanks for being with us today, John. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Bill. Hope to see you soon. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye.